Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Good morning. So this is part two of a short two-part series entitled Hunger. And last week, Pastor Randy began by speaking about feeding the hunger of the soul. We looked at the miraculous feeding of Jesus serving 5,000 men, plus women and children, and Pastor Randy talked about the call on each one of our lives to serve and to pray and to love the spiritually hungry that are all around us, and particularly those within our sphere of influence. And this morning, as was just read, we will now look at the feeding of the 4,000 and talk about feeding the hunger of the body. So here's Jesus. He's near the Sea of Galilee. And there are great crowds that come to him, and they're bringing the sick. They're bringing their disabled. The Bible says that Jesus performs a mass healing. There's a mass healing before a mass feeding. And so it says that the people, once they had experienced the healing, the people glorified the God of Israel. So whereas when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he and his disciples are actually in Jewish territory, what this tells us is, and what the text shows us, is that Jesus and his disciples are now in Gentile territory. And that's important. Why? It's important because it showcases the truth that there is no one people group that can monopolize the blessing of God. You see, Jesus is performing another feeding miracle, but this time it's predominantly for the Gentiles. Why? Because the bread of life is offered to all who are hungry. You see, the gospel isn't good news. For some, the gospel is good news for all. If you believe that this morning, let me hear you say amen. Jesus says, all, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come all who are thirsty, and I will give you the living water. Come all who are hungry, and I will give you the bread of life. And so Jesus looks out at this crowd, and he's moved with compassion again, much like when he feeds the 5,000. But he sees that this group of people have been with him for three days. They don't have food, and he cares for their physical well-being. The text literally says that Jesus says, I'm unwilling that they return to their homes lest they faint on their way back. And so the disciples actually respond, well, Jesus, where are we going to get enough bread 
to feed all of these people in this desolate place. And the Bible doesn't tell us who asked the question. I think a good guess might be Peter. Peter liked to speak up every now and then. But it could have been one of the other disciples. Maybe it was Andrew. Maybe it was Philip. But what I'd really be interested to see was the look on Jesus' face when the disciples asked again. You know, here they are looking at this sea, this crowd of people, and they ask him, Jesus, seriously? How are we going to feed all these people in a deserted place? And I don't know, I can just see Jesus' face, maybe something like, Well, <laughs> how much bread do you have? And so the disciples go and they look and they come back, seven loaves and a few fish. Okay, bring them to me. Tell everybody to sit down. Oh, right? Something's got to click at some point. Bring them to me. Tell the people to sit down. Oh, okay, everybody, take a seat, okay? Watch this. This is going to be really cool. And once again, Jesus takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he distributes the bread to the disciples to give out to the crowd. One of the crazy things about this account of both the 5,000 and the 4,000, if you look at the text, it only mentions the men. We know that there are women and children. But there are actually more resources with less men in this miraculous feeding. So when there was 5,000 men... There were five loaves of bread and two fish. But now as they get ready to feed 4,000 men, women and children, they have seven loaves and a few fish. You see, have you ever been in a situation where you've actually seen God do more with less in your life? But because you're facing this problem in front of you, you're so consumed with the challenge ahead that you lose sight or forget about the past provision that God has given you in your life. So we look at the disciples and we see this miraculous healing again and we think how could the disciples be so dense to not get it? But this story really isn't just about the disciples, this story is about you and I. Because it's the human condition to become forgetful. Look at the Israelites, 400 years of Egyptian slavery and oppression, and literally the hand of God delivers them from the greatest leader on the face of the earth in all of his military might. God parts waters, allows the Israelites to walk on dry land, and when they get on the other side of deliverance, their faith is strengthened. They begin to praise God and sing songs with Moses of deliverance and praise to their God. But the Bible quickly shows us that by the time they get into the wilderness, the desolate place, they look around and they begin to realize that they're hungry. And even though they've seen what God has done, they don't see what God is about to do. And so their faith begins to falter. And I wonder if some of you 
in here this morning are living in that tension between what life has thrown at you and what God is about to do. So the Israelites cry out to Moses. At least back in Egypt, we had rack of lamb and bread and butter and all kinds of spices. But why would God bring us out here just so that we could die of hunger? And that's when God tells Moses about the manna. It's the original wonder bread. It's gluten-free, low-carb, all vital nutrients needed. And this isn't, you know, 10, 15,000 men, women, and children one afternoon in a desert. This is literally millions of Israelites, a couple million of Israelites, being fed for 40 years. And the lesson, of course, was that God will provide your daily bread, that God can supply all of your needs. But I think it's even deeper than that. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It says, He, speaking of God, humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, it was never just about bread. It was about the voice of God. It was about the word of God. It was about the promises of God. That it would be a teachable lesson that the Lord was with them, that the word was with them. And I don't know what some of your challenges are this morning, whether it be financial or academic or relational or family. Whatever hardships maybe you're enduring, I'm imploring you this morning to remember the faithfulness and the goodness of God in your story and in your life and in your family and to hear again the word of God and his promises spoken over you. For he says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you, and he will not fail you, nor will he forsake you. So cast your burdens upon the Lord, and he will sustain you, for he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love him, and who are called according to his purpose. So Jesus sits the crowd down. He takes the loaves. He takes the fish. He performs this ritual of giving thanks, of breaking, and distributing. But Jesus doesn't pass them out himself. He wants the disciples to pass out and distribute the bread. And that's important because if you think back to last week and we look at the miracle of the 5,000, the disciples implored Jesus to send the people away so that they can go to neighboring villages and buy bread for themselves. But Jesus says they don't have to leave. You give them something to eat. And that's important because there's a question that God is asking of his people. It's where Pastor Randy left off in the message last week. 
And the question that God asks you and the question that God asks me is what are you going to do with your bread? That's the prophetic agenda in Isaiah 58. Israel has just returned from Jerusalem after almost 50 years of exile. And they're beginning to root themselves back into their homeland. And Isaiah wants to remind them that there is a calling on their lives to be people that are justice-oriented. Matter of fact, he says the promises of God, the promises that God has for you are tied to the fact that you must act justly as a people. And so when I've converted and became a Christian a few years ago now, I joined the Seventh-day Adventist church. And this text, actually, Isaiah 58, was one that I heard often. It's not the verses that I want to share with you today. They're verses that were actually beautifully sung by our choir this morning. But there were always verses 13 and 14. Maybe some of you are familiar with them. But it talks about turning your foot and not trampling the Sabbath, doing your own pleasure on my holy day. It says to call the Sabbath a delight and to honor it, to not go about doing your own things and seeking your own pleasure. God says, then I will cause you to ride upon the heights of the earth. Have you heard that text before? I heard that one often when I first came into the church. And it's a great text. It's actually a great proof text for many people. It showed us why we needed to turn off the television, not go to the mall, maybe talk about the basketball game. Whatever it was considered that would be breaking the Sabbath, inappropriate or self-seeking, all that. And I want to be clear I am all for protecting the sacredness of the Sabbath. I think many of you, maybe in here, could relate to my own experience where I have come to appreciate and enjoy the gift of Sabbath more and more with age. But as is often the case, when we take a text out of its context, we can actually make really narrow applications and miss the bigger picture. So if you actually look at Isaiah chapter 58 in its entirety, in the beginning of the chapter, God is actually displeased with Israel's hypocritical worship. Almost sarcastically, it says, they seek me daily, speaking of God's people, and they delight in knowing my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness. The people of God say, we have fasted. Why don't you see us? We've humbled ourselves. Why won't you take notice of us? And God responds, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and you oppress your workers. Is this the fast that I've called for you to humble yourself, to bow your head like a reed, to put on sackcloth and ash? Is that really the fast that I've chosen for you? And then God says these words, beginning in verse 6. Or is this not the kind of fasting 
that I have chosen. That you would loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked that you would clothe them, not turn, your way, uh, turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You see, fasting is an attempt for us to align our priorities with the will of God. And so the prophet Isaiah is calling the people of God to a fast, but it's not a fast from food. It's a fast from affluence. It's a fast from privilege. This is the fast that Isaiah calls the people of God to, one that would bring the community of faith into harmony with God. The God, he says in Isaiah 57, 15, who dwells in a high and holy place and yet also with those who are of contrite and humble spirits. You see, Isaiah isn't opposed to worship. Isaiah is opposed to the hypocrisy of worshiping God while neglecting the needs of the needy and the vulnerable. You see, for Isaiah, that kind of insincere worship amounts to trampling on the Sabbath. To honor the Sabbath involves not only worship, but to care for those at the bottom of the social ladder. The Ten Commandments actually show us that the purpose of Sabbath is to grant a day of respite for all, but especially for those of the quote-unquote underclass. Keeping the Sabbath and acting justly toward our neighbor are intricately connected. We dishonor the Sabbath when we're pursuing and serving our own interests and our own affairs only. See, there's nothing wrong with potluck and naps. But what about food and rest for the poor? Can those rhythms become a part of our Sabbath observance? The question to answer is what will we do with our bread? I love verse 10. In that text in Isaiah, it says, spend yourselves, or in the English standard, standard Version, it says, pour yourself out for the hungry. And I love that imagery of pouring ourselves out. See, this isn't just about making a donation or even making a sack lunch. 
This is about giving of yourself for the plight of the vulnerable. But why? Why not just hoard our bread? What would cause us to turn our focus from self-interest to the suffering of the vulnerable? It has to be the gospel. The gospel is about changed lives. The gospel is not just a truth that we assent to here. It's a truth that has to be felt and experienced in the heart and in the belly. It changes us. And that's why we see in 2 Corinthians 8, the apostle Paul wants the people of God to take up an offering for the poor. But it's interesting to see how Paul goes about asking for money for the poor. He doesn't do it based on his status as an apostle. He doesn't go to the church and say, hey, I'm an apostle. Your duty to me is to listen to what I say. Go give an offering to the poor. He doesn't do that. Paul doesn't even begin to tell them sob stories about how much the the poor people are suffering out there or how good your lives are compared to the poor. He doesn't play on emotion either. He vividly and unforgettably says these words, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see, what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, you know the grace. He's he's asking them to remember, you know the grace of Christ, And he's bringing Jesus' salvation into the realm of money and wealth and poverty. And he's saying, I'm going to ask you to give, but I don't want to ask you to give against your will. I don't want to ask you to give by playing on your emotions. I want you to give because you have a spiritual recollection of what Christ has done for you when he poured out of himself and of his life. And that as you think on those things, as you pray on those things, it would create an inner transformation in your heart where you would be reoriented to being generous. You see, that's the antidote to stinginess. It's the gospel that you would be reoriented to give because the Lord Jesus Christ poured himself out for you. This is what it means To be a Christian, it's to live in imitation of the Christ. And so, we pour ourselves out for others, particularly for the poor and the voiceless and the marginalized and the vulnerable and the oppressed and the outcast. But the truth is, When we pour ourselves out for others, we're really pouring ourselves out back unto God. You see, because Jesus is so caught up, he's so identified with the poor and the outcast, not just in his ministry, but even in his ascension back in heaven, that he says in Matthew 25, that when the Son of Man returns in the judgment, in the separation of the righteous and the wicked, the differentiator will be that when I was hungry, you fed me. 
And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. And when I was sick, you nursed me back to health. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me. And both righteous and wicked, confounded, will ask, when did or did we not do that for you? And God will say, when you did it for the overlooked, when you did it for the ignored, that was me. And so here, Jesus is so concerned when he's on the earth in his ministry that the disciples would be the one to distribute bread. He was the source giving to the people. But now Jesus ascends into heaven and he says, this is what the last day is going to look like. You still continue to distribute bread, but know this, that when you distribute it to them, it's as if you're giving it to me. I'm now the recipient. James puts it pretty bluntly. This is what he says. What good is it to become religious? Tell me, what good is it for us to come here week after week after week after week and learn the ropes of religiosity but never actually do anything? He says, if you see someone dressed in rags and half-starved on the side of the road and all you can say is, good morning, brother, be clothed in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. Have a blessed day. Without actually providing a coat or a cup of soup, he says that is all faith and no action, which is actually no faith at all. As many of you know, I oversee the young adult ministry of this church, and we try to live by this mantra of practice over theory. It's the literal definition of the word praxis. And the hope was that this mantra and this meaning that is embedded in the name would actually become embedded in our community and that we would be passionate about encouraging one another to practice our faith in practical, tangible, everyday ways. And so almost two years ago, we made this shift that was consistent with our mantra, and we decided instead of consuming coffee and donuts after the church service, why don't we produce instead sack lunches for locals that are experiencing homelessness? So almost two years ago, right out here, one Sabbath, we made 87 lunches. And almost every weekend since, we've done that same rhythm. Many of you have helped participate, both young and old, at one time or another with that ministry. And to date, we've made over 30,000 lunches. But I look at that and I say, is, is the brown bag project going to end hunger in San Bernardino? No. Is the brown bag project even one of the more effective ways to try to address hunger in this community or the underlying issues of poverty or unemployment, things that actually lead families and individuals to become food insecure? No, probably not. Well, what is it then? Kind of feels like seven loaves and two fish. Might not be much, but it's something. And more importantly, it allows us to practice the faith that we espouse. And it tethers us to this truth that theory without practice and doctrine without deeds and faith without works is dead. At the beginning of this year, our young adult ministry also 
created a partnership with a local Seventh-day Adventist church in San Bernardino. And uh, we began to explore ways that we could try to be a blessing to this neighborhood, partner with them. And that led us to this mission. Um, it's a local mission that helps shelter and feed men that are experiencing homelessness. And so on Thursday evenings, we started to show up there. And we didn't come necessarily to serve in the kitchen, to serve them. We actually came to sit down with, eat, and conversate with them. And this was a great way for these men to be able to socialize and to be able to, to meet some new people. And for our young people, it was an opportunity for them to sit down with and actually hear perspectives, stories from people that are experiencing homelessness. You know, oftentimes we'll serve the disadvantaged, but we won't sit with them. And we'll feed them, but we won't eat with them. And so it was a unique opportunity for us. And after we built some rapport and relationships with several of these men, and we actually read Luke chapter 14, where Jesus talks about throwing parties for people and inviting dinner guests who could never repay you. And so we made this decision, hey, let's throw a party for these men, and we'll call it the king's table. We actually adopted it from a church out in Orange County that throws these monthly banquets for people experiencing homelessness out there. And so we had a chef and a crew that cooked a three-course meal. This is us here, both the young adults and the men. Uh, it was a beautiful spread, a beautiful night. We had live music. It was a night of great food, night of sharing. It was humanity. It was dignity. It was beautiful. These are some of our young adults that were coming out to serve each of the three-course meals. The man you see right there in the tan shirt, he was actually director at the time of the mission. And I remember seeing Rick. Uh, he actually had soft tears streaming down his face at one point in the night. I went up after and I asked him, you know, Rick, what was that? I saw you get emotional. What's going on? And he pointed across the table to one of the men at the shelter. He said, I've seen that man here for weeks, but that's the first time I've seen him smile. It was a moving moment for us. This is uh, actually one of the different men that's smiling here, but uh, that last picture kind of captures the evening for me. I'll never forget that moment and that smile. And we were all beaming, having walked away from the king's table and that night spent together around the table. As we think about the global needs of hunger around the world, there was an opportunity that came across the desk of the church this past week in Venezuela beautiful country that is currently under a significant crisis. Their economy is in free fall. There are food and medicine shortages, hyperinflation. It's a dire situation out there. And there's actually one of our own Adventist churches who has started a public cafeteria and food bank. And they're currently serving over 250 people each week. They've actually expanded their services to be able to give three times a week. This is some of the locals that are lining up uh, to receive meals, to receive help to some of them in their cafeteria. There's loving brothers and sisters in the kitchen each week preparing these uh, nutritious meals for the people, for the children. I think there's one more there where you see them receiving supplies and toiletries and other food to take home to families. We'd like to actually partner with this local church, both in prayer and in financial contributions to assist the ministry that they're doing in that country it's under such duress. 
And so at the end of the service this morning, there will be baskets at the exit doors where you can place donations if you would like to support that ministry. I also want to mention UReach, which of course is the outreach ministry of this church. There are always opportunities where you are needed. Um, the transit ministry provides transportation for senior adults in our community that otherwise wouldn't have transportation. We've got the Meals on Wheels program, which gives them healthy um, vegetarian options. I don't know if you know, we have our own UReach Cafe out here now in the courtyard that's serving both the hospital and the students here on campus. All the proceeds that are used from those sales go right back into the ministry for mission. And so the Lord calls us to give of our bread. He'll never ask us to give what we do not have, but he cannot use what we will not give. And so I think about the disciples, the seven loaves and those few fish. It might not have seemed like much. Matter of fact, it might have seemed like nothing in comparison to the sea of people. And maybe this morning as you think about global hunger or the water crisis or human trafficking in San Bernardino, it could feel a lot like what do I have to offer that wouldn't really amount to much of nothing. But I want to encourage you this morning because sometimes we become so cause-driven that we forget that behind the cause, there's actual people. That behind the statistics, there are actual lives. And that you can make a difference in one person's life. So give what you have, even if it feels like nothing. Because to the God who created the universe, out of nothing, maybe nothing is one of his favorite materials to work with. Maybe what we consider as nothing or insignificant or worthless, God looks at and says, okay, I can do something with that. Let's pray. Jesus, so good to be together, to be in your presence and to hear your clarion call as followers of Christ and the believers of the gospel message and your good news, we are compelled to give and serve, particularly to the most vulnerable, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, because not only have you self-identified with them, but you call us as brothers and sisters in Christ to do the very same thing. To this end, would you mobilize and move us in heart and mind, hands and feet, spirit and soul, for the purpose of your cause and kingdom, to bring health, healing, and wholeness to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.